Hello and welcome to the Borders of Equality podcast. This is a podcast made at Leiden University where we talk about immigration, the welfare state, inequality and redistribution. We'll be covering things like welfare tourism, welfare chauvinism and other isms that connect immigration and political economies around the world. This podcast is made possible by Leiden University and the Dutch Science Foundation. I am Darren Oxbonder and I'm here with Emily Wolf, Samir Nagash and Alex Afonso. This week we're talking about immigration, race and the welfare state in the United States. Immigration and ethnic divisions around race are often mentioned as factors that have prevented the US from having the kind of welfare state that you find in Europe. Just a few numbers. In 2018, the US spent 18% of its GDP in public social spending, for instance for things like unemployment benefits or healthcare. In comparison, this figure was 28% in Denmark, and this is why it's prominent politicians on the left like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying that the U.S. should become more like Europe with higher taxes and more welfare. I think we should look to countries like Denmark, like Sweden and Norway and learn from what they have accomplished for their working people. Now, some people have argued that the reason why the U.S. states couldn't be like Denmark is that it's a country that has been built on immigration, unlike Denmark, and that the ethnic divisions have made it more difficult to build a large welfare state. Is there any truth in this, Alex? So would you say the U.S. is really so different from Europe? So it's important to say that there are European countries nowadays that spend less than the U.S. in social spending uh, as a total share of their GDP. That's the case of the Netherlands or Switzerland, for instance. Um, But U.S. social spending becomes a lot bigger in comparison if you include not only public, but also private spending. So the best example is healthcare. The U.S. has got one of the most, if not the most expensive healthcare system in the world, in spite of having a large uninsured population and a life expectancy that is actually lower than comparable European countries. For instance, people in France can hope to live about four years longer than in the United States. But what really sets the US apart from other advanced industrialized countries is more what it does than, than what it costs. So it doesn't really redistribute much you still have much higher levels of inequality after taxes than in other rich countries, and it simply doesn't provide the same services that you get elsewhere. For instance, you don't have paid maternity leave, and many people can't afford a decent healthcare plan. It draws a lot more on the private sector and less on the state. So as a whole, it's a system where the poor stay poor, and where many programs are simply much less generous than their equivalent uh, in Europe. For instance, if you have been unemployed for six months in the European Union, on average, you can expect to receive the equivalent of about 55% of the average wage in your country in unemployment benefits. Whereas in the United States, even if benefits vary by state, that's about 6%. So they are much lower and they are much more limited in time. So the US is important, not because of its size of the welfare state, but because of what it does. So Samir, could you maybe tell us what aspects of this have to do with immigration and race? The basic argument there is uh, that um, welfare states and redistribution are all premised on some sense of solidarity, some sense of collective solidarity, trust and reciprocity with other people. And the idea is that people are generally speaking more willing to be forthcoming with that solidarity to people that look like them than people that don't look like them. And why would that be the case? There are actually multiple reasons why that might be the case, and a lot of scholars have uh, researched this. 
and it could just be that people are just more distrustful and uh, more hesitant to share with other people that don't look like them. But it, it could also be that in different areas, in uh, different countries and across different time periods, politicians have uh, emphasized these racial and ethnic differences and been able to leverage that to mobilize anti-redistribution sentiments in society. And Alzine and Glazer in particular uh, are scholars who've researched this and found that ethnic and racial minorities, if they're generally speaking poorer than the general population, which is the case in the U.S., and if they are sort of concentrated in particular areas, are easy scapegoats for the general population. And it's easier for politicians to mobilize people in support of policies that sort of harm them, to mobilize people in opposition to redistribution. So it's really about social cohesion, something that Europe has and the U.S. lacks. Yes and no. thing is, there might be social cohesion between whites in the U.S. and there are welfare programs in the U.S. that, at least in, uh, when they were set up, mainly redistributed or helped out whites. And an interesting thing is, uh, there are also areas in Europe that are more ethnically diverse. It's just that there, uh, the ethnic minorities tended to not be poor. Uh, think of Belgium, where the French-speaking minority was relatively large and also relatively wealthy. As far as conflicts over uh, or uh, an ethnic division between uh, the Valonians and the Flemish, these that didn't touch on redistribution as much. And the same is actually true in Spain, where uh, the Basques and the Catalans are also relatively wealthy. While there is still ethnic conflict, that does not ex uh, explicitly touch on the welfare state there as much. So it's really about the state of minorities having higher incomes than some of the general population in Europe, where you can kind of see the inverse in, in the yeah, US. It doesn't make sense to mobilize people against a group that's uh, notably wealthier and be afraid that they're going to redistribute money to them. If there's going to be redistribution, it's probably going to be the other way around. You're going to redistribute money from the Catalans to the general Spanish population. Well, I think the thing that's that's so interesting about this idea that if a minority group is less well off, they'll be less likely to benefit is that the institutions that we consider constitutive of the welfare state actually contributed to keeping some people in poverty. And I think in the United States, the history of how the welfare state developed indicates that these patterns of exclusion yeah, contributed to the perpetuation of poverty among minority groups. So it's this kind of self-perpetuating cycle. I think also to, to go back to the U.S., I think the theoretical argument is to say that if you want to have a strong welfare state, you also need pretty strong and cohesive social blocs. So in Europe, it's been typically trade unions or socialist parties. Now, in the U.S., because it's a country that was built on immigration, you had lots of other divisions that potentially could crowd out the emergence of these strong class identities. So you had, if you look at the history of trade unions in the U.S., there were lots of German sections, even Finnish sections. There were lots of you know, newspapers in Philadelphia, even one that was edited by uh, Benjamin Franklin was uh, in German. There was even a socialist newspaper somewhere in Wisconsin published in Finnish. So you had lots of other divisions that sort of could structure the identity of people and had competed with a strong class identity that you need for strong either socialist parties or strong trade unions to just bond together and put pressure on the political system. If you have all these different divisions, it just makes it more difficult for all these social actors to coordinate and act together. And might that also be why the policies that emerged in the U.S. were so different? Some were parochial, some were kind of centralized. So is that something that also contributed to, 
to the situation that we are in now with the US's welfare state being considerably less kind of comprehensive. Yeah, I think if I could jump in here, I would say definitely. And it's interesting that you mentioned the difference between parochial and more centralized systems, because I think that that is something that really has determined the outcomes of welfare state development on different groups of people. So maybe if I can take the liberty to go to what sort of the literature is saying about the history, there were kind of two eras of welfare state development that I think are important to look at if we're concerned with inclusion and exclusion and to unpack what you said about the development of centralized or parochial institutions. And the first one is pre-depression or before the Great Depression. So you had this progressive era in the United States between the 1890s and the 1920s, which was progressive in the sense that there started to be implemented political reforms in response to the destabilization that industrialization had caused. And some of these reforms included the provision of private relief, but the federal government was really not involved in relief at all at this point. So you had communities and local authorities who were responsible for both indoor relief, like poor houses. Um, if you think of sort of the way we think of English poor laws, this is the, the right idea to have. There were residences where you had to go to if you were not able to support yourself. And you also had outdoor relief, which is more um, how we understand welfare to be now, which is kind of the provision of food and clothing, generally in-kind benefits, but there was also cash and so regarding the inclusion and exclusion of, of minorities at this time, we can look at welfare relief expenditure data. And in fact, Cybel Fox has done this. And she finds that there really are three different patterns emerging that are geographically delineated. So she finds that states in the South and in the Southwest are spending significantly less on these outdoor relief programs. The expenditure in the South is two times less than expenditure in the Northeastern states. And in the Southwest, it's, it's like 50%. So she argues that the differences can be explained or we have to understand the differences in relation to race. So these different geographical locations were also home to different minority groups and different racial conflicts. In the Northeast and in the Midwest, you had white European immigrants. They were concentrated predominantly in the manufacturing sector. In the South, you had black tenant farmers who were still suffering under Jim Crow laws, which meant that they were basically forced to defer to the authority of a white man if they wanted to do any number of things, whether it was walk in a different neighborhood, whether it was read a certain book. And then in the Southwest, you had Mexicans who were migrant laborers. And Fox makes the argument that race was not, it wasn't accidental, it wasn't coincidental to the fact that the South was spending less. The racial conflict was deeply wrapped up in why the South was um, spending less. So you had Southern landlords, for example, black tenant farmers. That's a rely on Southern landlords to have even like the bare minimum, let's say, is a better way way to put it. And Southern landlords wanted to maintain that system. That was a political economy of white supremacy that was disproportionately benefiting them. So relief would have minimized their control over their laborers. And so they were against it. And so this is how she explains relief expenditure. And she also talks about how dependency problems were socially constructed. So there was this idea that minorities were disproportionately dependent on welfare. It was especially prominent in the Southwest. But as Fox argues, this problem was distorted by statistics that were being selected on the basis of pre-existing prejudices. So you had, for example, a school of social work that was founded in 1921, and the director of it, who would then later go on to be a member of the Advisory Council of the American Eugenics Society, said, you know, a race representing 7 to 8 percent of this population is furnishing 28 to 30 percent of charity cases, and he's talking about Mexicans. But these are completely selective statistics. Yeah, you had over 50 percent of children in the Catholic Welfare Bureau who were Mexican, but if you looked at the poor houses, you know, we were talking about indoor relief, it was like 4% of almshouse residences. So this is really selective statistic use. And we can, we can kind of tease out the effect of race on this as opposed to citizenship. 
because we can compare it to European immigrants and their situation in the Northeast. And we find that in the Northeast, actually, you kind of did have some instances of disproportionate reliance on welfare. So you did have some statistics that would have shown that European immigrants were, were using welfare more, non-recent immigrants. But in that case, you had interest groups who would mobilize in favor of, and this relates to Alex's point earlier as well, that the political landscape determines which interests are going to be put are going to be furthered and so you had a national conference of charities instituted a commission and that commission in 1912 stood out in favor of european immigrants saying these statistics are biased this is unfair and the national industrial board also lobbied in favor of their workers uh, i think it's interesting then that uh, different groups of immigrants actually were treated quite differently in the u.s uh, and that kind of puts a light to the test that when people talk about how uh, immigration negatively affects the welfare state, it probably also depends on what the origin of the migrants is uh, and how they're going to perceive be perceived in the uh, country they migrate to. I think what also what is interesting in the U.S. is that all these waves of immigrants that have arrived were perceived quite early as potential voters with a strong incentive also for local parties. You know, there were all these party machines in, in U.S. cities where they would bring in, well, the immigrants that would arrive would be integrated quite quickly because they were perceived quite quickly as a, as a potential electoral force that could keep certain politicians in power. And and that's due, I think, to citizenship laws that, that are quite different in the U.S. than in Europe, where if you look at Germany, for instance, you don't really have that dynamic because it's very difficult to become German. So it also creates a much smaller level of political power for immigrants to just present their own interests, even if there are differences between groups of immigrants, as you said. But can you really say that there is cleavages between parties that are pro-immigrants and have recruited lots of these migrants over time? Or is this something that might have been very prevalent in the 70s and 80s maybe, but has kind of lost its force and shape today? Yeah, I think you also had that in the US, where in the beginning you had recent immigrants that became recent Americans that had an interest in having open channels for their family members or people from their own community to actually come in. And then it's, I think this is... A, faded off over time where the connection between immigrant populations in the U.S. and the old countries somehow became a lot looser. So that's why you have a turn also. That's what I got from, uh, from this historical research is that you have you know, a bit of a turn at some point where Anglo and Scandinavian or white immigrants in the U.S. kind of their stance towards open immigration also changes at some point. Well, you know, they want the door open, but when they got all their people in, they kind of closed the door. Yeah, and I guess some, some migrants also have this close the door behind me syndrome that they take with them, right? I want to come in and, and that's it. No one else has the right to come in. Not having solidarity with other people from their own group. I think, I think what is interesting in the case of the US is the New Deal. The New Deal is presented as a super progressive time of social welfare expansion that, you know, even people, politicians in the US now are, are taking a, as an example for now. But I think what is a bit neglected is this whole exclusionary dimension of the New Deal, where I, I think in Cybel Fox and in also this research by Robert Lieberman, they show that the New Deal was actually quite selective in terms of who could benefit and who couldn't. <laughs> the ones that couldn't benefit were just the usual groups that as we've talked about before. Yeah, I think the New Deal does present a really interesting and clear example of the ways that particular configurations of race relations influence and kind of penetrate political economic structures to redistribute. 
Robert Lieberman looks at three different programs that were instituted at the during the Social Security Act of 1935, which is widely considered to be this incredibly important, profound, dramatic moment in the expansion of federal power in social welfare policy in the United States. And although FDR was very much anti-discrimination, he, he made federal pledges that there would be no discrimination. And so what we see happening, though, in these programs that Robert Lieberman looks at is that absent of the possibility to explicitly discriminate, there emerged new mechanisms for discriminating that would be more subtle. And it played out in different ways across different programs. So again, we saw even before this period, I was talking about how Southern planters were trying to preserve their white supremacist, labor repressive agricultural systems. And that was still overwhelmingly their goal, but now it was more influential to FDR than it might've been before because Congress was dominated by Southerners or he needed their support as a Democrat. Actually, an unholy alliance between northern liberal Democrats and southern and often segregationist white Democrats. You essentially needed to buy off the support of those uh, southern uh, segregationists who, uh, a priori, were essentially just all, uh, always uh, hesitant to support redistribution and were uh, particularly hesitant to support redistribution in the south and extend that redistribution to uh, uh, African-Americans because that risked upsetting their model of political economy based on essentially indentured black servants. Yeah, and I think it's important to look at the specifics of how that played out because it will help us understand what the also institutional effects are of this type of group like the Southern Planters trying to sort of barge their way into the door. So in one of the programs, Old Age Insurance, planters felt particularly threatened because it was a system that would be based on or administered by a national bureaucratic agency and payments would be directly given from the federal government to the citizens. And so the main, the main lobbying point of plantation workers was to ensure that the target population would exclude the majority of blacks. And so that meant lobbying for the exclusion of agricultural and domestic workers, which constituted over half of black workers or over three fifths of black workers in the South. And they did it. They didn't do it on the guise of, of sort of racial motivation, of course, but it was um, under the pretenses of administrative feasibility. They also just explicitly referenced those interests related uh, not upsetting the, uh, their model of economic production. Roosevelt's administrations were also actually uh, supportive of the development of labor unions and also crafted a lot of uh, important labor uh, laws, like the initi initiation of the minimum wage. And even there, you saw that the Southern Democrats in Congress were able to extract important concessions. So many of those uh, new labor laws were also not uh, applied to agricultural workers. And that was uh, also just uh, very clearly specified in those uh, statutes that agricultural workers and uh, care, uh, care workers were also just excluded from those laws. Which, which is interesting because it's a system where because you are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of race, you just find other channels that achieve pretty much the same goal, but through other things. For instance, if you exclude agricultural workers and domestic workers that basically employ the overwhelming majority of blacks at the time, then you're basically you know, pursuing a racist goal with things that don't look racist, definitely. But what, what was interesting is that after the Second World War, when there was just a great shortage of laborers, workers in the South also started unionizing mm. in large numbers. And that was sort of a tipping point for the 
uh, Southern segregationists. And they essentially withdrew the, uh, their support for labor laws and essentially instituted uh, far stricter labor laws and also restricted the, the ability of unions to collectively bargain and strike. It's, it's much easier to organize workers in northeastern cities that in factories and in, in large cities than the agricultural workforce, where the workforce is much more dispersed and is in a relationship of dependence towards their employers, which is a bit different from in factories. Well, Alessina and Glazer talk about that too, don't they? The idea that unions are inherently a distributive force is not entirely true that it actually ends up disproportionately benefiting the traditionally unionized groups. Yes, the uh, core argument of much of the, the scholarship on dualized... Uh, and to be fair, it's my impression also that unions in the early 20th century in the US were not exactly an inclusive force when it comes to race. I remember seeing this pamphlet from the early 20th century about the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is one of the important acts that excluded certain nationalities from entering the US on the basis of nationality that were really clearly racist. So it was also tricky. And it really, you know, falls back on the idea that the workforce was really quite divided and, 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 and white workers were not very open to coalesce across these ethnic and, and immigration boundaries. Or even issues that might not be cultural or social, but touch on the rights of actual workers. If they're, for example, self-employed, you don't have an interest in protecting them. You might extend solidarity to them, but uh, you're not obligated to. And oftentimes their interests are also in conflict with your interests. Yeah, and insiders and outsiders, if you think about... I mean, that's, that's the case not only in the US, but across countries. There is a tendency for labor unions to just favor the interests of their own members. And if your members are mostly male and older and white... This will lead you to champion a particular agenda that is a bit different when it comes to, I don't know, gender equality or immigration or things like that, that don't, you know, that your members don't really care that much about. That becomes problematic when resources to be distributed become limited, because then you need to make choices um, for a labor union. If you've got a certain budget to allocate or, certain, you know, your political capital that you can spend on a particular agenda, well, of course, you're going to put your members before all the others, sadly. And what's interesting, actually, if thinking about the old age insurance program as well, you mentioned the challenges around self-employed workers or that they have this kind of unique category. And we were also talking about the incentives maybe set in motion by different memberships of different unions. What you had with the old age insurance program was that there was sort of an inherent expansionary impulse because it was funded by contributions, which meant that you had an incentive to expand the contributors. But this still didn't immediately benefit minority groups. In fact, the first legal reforms or the legislative reforms that happened in the 1950s expanded the beneficiaries and the contributors to include the self-employed, but still not to include agricultural workers. And I think domestic workers were included at that time too. And it wasn't until Southern Democrats were no longer, let's say, in charge that agricultural workers were actually included as well. And then you had in the other program that was interesting with the New Deal, you actually had kind of the other and opposite incentive, which was to restrict because this was funded by federal grants Aid to dependent children was funded by grants that the federal government would offer each state. And it wasn't possible to manipulate the target population by excluding certain people because it was means tested. So basically, if you were poor, that was the point you were supposed to benefit from it. And because there was a disproportionate rate of poverty among black Americans than among non-black Americans or white Americans, I guess you should say, this meant that blacks were bound to be let's say, significant beneficiaries of this program. And so then you had interest groups that 
would contest it on other grounds, if they couldn't contest who was going to be included in the program, then they tried to contest and shape the institutional structure of the program. And they did this by challenging the amount of federal authority. Federal government could not have any operational control over the rollout of the program. All they could do was approve or disapprove the use of the policy, which granted a lot of local discretion. And I think this is something also interesting for us to talk about is the degree to which local discretion impacts policy outcomes, because what happened was then there was substantial discrimination in the administration of this program. And I think Alicina and Glazer, the data that they use in the 1990s when they look at um, racial spending or welfare spending, they also use this program in particular, Aid to Dependent Children, because just the discrimination was so stark that if you were black, you were less likely to be considered eligible for the payments, despite having a disproportionately high rate of poverty. And if you, if you were considered eligible, then you were more likely to have smaller payments. I think for this particular program, the precise mechanism was not so much that you were not eligible. It's just that states had discretion to set eligibility standards and states with larger black populations set eligibility standards that were quite strict on uh, one. And also states were in charge of setting benefit levels. Also, that's not entirely the case, though. You also had relief workers themselves who were discriminating. You do have different levels where you, you might have a federal regulation that leaves some leeway for states to set their own benefit levels. So you might have a discrepancy that happens there. And then you have implementation, which then becomes an, another world again, where you might have significant discretion, where the same rule might just be applied very differently according to different racial stereotypes or different opinions of the actual people who make the policy on the ground. So there's all this literature on street-level bureaucracy. What the literature on this also shows is that more local control sometimes, most of the time, leads to more discrimination. Right, and one thing we haven't really touched upon yet explicitly is the, the difference between a notion of race-laden versus explicitly racist. And what I gather from this discussion is that quite clear evidence that there is some kind of racism in the system, but how do you qualify? Is it really about the, whether or not a policy is locally administrated that determines the degree to which a system can be seen as racist? And, and if so, is it then explicit racism? I think what happens often is outcomes become discriminatory if you have, as you said before, I think, Samir, in the beginning, when you have an alignment of different types of disadvantages and when you have both race that is aligned with a, a weaker economic position, and that creates a whole dynamic that actually perpetuates itself. What really struck me, what you said before, where you have a big role for means testing in the US, which means that benefits and the welfare state is generally only targeted at the poor. So the middle class, basically in a system where you have pure means testing, is paying taxes, but these taxes are only used for people at the bottom, which creates some of these problems of implementation that you mentioned before. But it also creates a, a dynamic where the middle class just says, I'm paying lots of money for these programs that I don't benefit from. So I've got an incentive to push for policies to actually lower these benefits at the bottom, which creates a dynamic where you have a policy that is in principle good for the poor because it's a Robin Hood system where you take from the rich, you give to the poor, but where it's basically the rich who are in power and they've got an incentive to push for even lower benefits that go to the poor. And that was pretty much the case in the US. Although we need to qualify the effects of means-tested programs because... Support for programs tends to be a bit lower than support for non-means-tested programs in the U.S. So support for Medicaid, uh, food stamps, and uh, welfare, uh, for example, is lower than support for Social Security, the old age program, and Medicare. But support for Medicaid is not 
much lower than support for mm-hmm. Medicare. And it's actually support for those programs is actually contingent on what people imagine the recipients being like. Do they assume the recipients are deserving or not? Do they assume the deser- uh, recipients are doing their best to pull themselves out of poverty? People make uh, qualifications about who's deserving and not, and based on that, and decide whether or not they support a program. And uh, this is something that Martin Gillens touches on in uh, his research. I mean, that's more uh, recent research, but or uh, research on a more uh, recent time period. But he finds that in the abstract, uh, Americans support more uh, government intervention. But even when you uh, talk about concrete policies, they support greater redistribution, uh, greater uh, support for the poor. It's just that when you talk about uh, welfare in particular and food stamps in particular, that uh, people are more apprehensive and actually favor cutting those programs. And uh, part of the reason why that's the case is because people assume that those programs go to undeserving people and in black people in particular. Mm-hmm. And they assume that those black people are poor because they are lazy or for some other reason doubt their well- uh, work ethic. And where does segregation fit into this? Because you're more likely to kind of come across someone on, on benefits, perhaps if you live in Europe and don't receive benefits yourself. I assume that living in a more segregated society makes it harder to kind of imagine this other person as deserving. And yeah. if you don't have anyone to relate to yourself. Uh, so the interesting thing is, uh, I think in the 1920s, 1930s and 1940s, blacks were actually not uh, perceived as being particularly dependent. Uh, and I think it's also something that uh, Fox touched on because they were not eligible for those programs and did not actually uh, take part in many of the social programs in place. Uh, people generally just assumed, oh, blacks are probably just hardworking and or hesitant to ask for help. Once they started getting access to those programs, once the media started covering black poverty and actually started noticing, oh, wow, black people in the South live in abject circumstances that people's perception of who was poor uh, started to change. And this sort of also coincided with the civil rights movement and race riots so actually, in a relatively short period of time, people's perception of who's poor in America, there's actually interesting survey data that when you ask people in the U.S. what share of a black population they assume is in poverty, the white population, generally speaking, assumes that this is over half of black people. I mean, it's still relatively high. It's closer to a third of black people. but So they assume that more black people are in poverty and uh, for some reason also undeserving, uh, doubt their work ethic. And this also sort of ties in with their perception about what causes black people's uh, current situation. Is it slavery? Is it uh, uh, any of those other uh, long-term factors? Or is it just uh, their uh, more their virtue uh uh, their moral deservingness and uh, willingness to work. Isn't it the case that um, like black people, before they were actually integrated within the welfare state because they were not covered, didn't they have the same function as, let's say, undocumented workers from Mexico nowadays that basically are also excluded from the welfare state because of their undocumented status, but also perceived as hardworking and, and basically outside the system? So it's interesting how these different roles are kind of similar, but have shifted over time. Yeah, and it's not necessarily related to whether or not you're a formal citizen or not, because blacks were obviously uh, citizens at that point. Yeah, and I think there there is some really interesting insight to be gleaned from sort of the ways that formal citizenship departs from social citizenship. I mean, you had like black Americans in the 1930s were trying or Roosevelt was trying to integrate them into a system where they would be given social rights but they didn't even have civil or political rights so the texture of their citizenship arguably was was much less profound 
And I think there's something else really interesting about um, Alex. You were you were mentioning that the rich are in power, and yet they have to be administrators of a system that's supposed to redistribute their wealth. And I think Alicina and Glazer talk about these campaigns in the United States to institute proportional representation in certain cities. I think it was around the between 1920 and, and 1950s when most of these campaigns were repealed, and so proportional representation maybe maybe this is clear, but is an electoral system where um, power will be distributed as a proportion of how many votes have been allocated. And so it disproportionately, or not disproportionately, but it offers uh, minorities the opportunity to participate in government in a way that majoritarian systems don't. And so this was perceived as, as extremely threatening to white supremacists at the time. So you saw, for example, in the 1950s, two, two black people were elected to city council. I think it was in Cincinnati. And this formed the, the cornerstone of the repeal efforts. The idea was that if we have proportional representation, then exactly what you said, Alex, the rich are no longer going to be in power. And this threatens like, the, the foundations of our political economy. It's funny then that uh, actually not that uh, long after that, in the Civil Rights uh, Act, I think they also just uh, created a number of uh, minority uh, majority districts to ensure that there's at least some descriptive representation when they uh, uh, extended civil rights as well. What is interesting, what you just described in the U.S., where efforts to establish proportional representation were smothered because of this risk of having black people basically in politics, was the opposite of what happened in Europe, where you had majoritarian systems where the rich were basically in power. And when they saw socialist movements basically building steam, they were scared that they would lose power under a majoritarian system. So that's why they established proportional systems where the strength of the left could somehow be contained. Majoritarian system is actually great when you're a majority, like in the US, but it's interesting to see how it shifts and how you design a political system to serve your own interests. And that was the case. It worked in different directions in the US and in Europe. Because the majoritarian system can probably inflate the support uh, that you have. If you have 40% of the votes, that can translate into 60% of the seats. And if you have a majoritarian system in the US, as long as there is a white majority, you can be sure that white majorities are always going to decide what happens in politics, right? And I think in Alicina and Glazer, they make the argument that proportional representation is profoundly impactful on the development of the welfare state, because the idea is if you're elected to represent a district in a majoritarian system, then you have an incentive to engage in pork barrel politics. So to create targeted geographically specific programs, whereas if you're elected in a proportional representative system, you have more incentive to generate or to create universal programs, which I think gets back also to the to one of our driving questions here, which is sort of what what happened in the US. And you will need a bigger coalition because you actually need a majority of the population to actually form a government, which is not necessarily the case in a majoritarian system. And what does this mean for Europe? So is this something you expect to find when you're looking at, for example, the UK versus Germany in, in terms of the, the, the longitudinal development of these institutions? So this is definitely the case that what the literature shows is that proportional representation tends to be more favorable to redistribution in general. So that's why you have countries like the UK or the US who have majoritarian systems that also tend to be more liberal in, in general. So that's what the research of Soskis and Iverson have shown, for instance, that proportional representation in general is a system that is more favorable 
to the development of a bigger welfare state because of the alliances, the incentives for alliances that it creates. Yes, because it conceivably could also split off the support for moderate right-wing forces and uh, sort of more liberal right-wing forces that mm -hmm. might favor uh, a smaller welfare state and might be conducive to the development of uh, sort of centrist parties like Christian Democrats mm -hmm. uh, who also tend to be uh, supportive of welfare states. You can work as an arbiter, as centrist coalitions, whereas you don't really have that incentive for centrist coalitions in a, in a, in a, in a majoritarian system. But, but your question, what does it mean for Europe? I think many of the dynamics that we saw for the US, where you had this juxtaposition of race and poverty that created a quite inegalitarian system, People like Alizine and Glazer, who've worked on this and tried to explain the differences between the US and Europe, what they've been arguing is that increasing levels of immigration into Europe might actually lead to the Americanization of the European welfare state, where if people, to the idea is that if people get the idea that their tax money is used to benefit people that are different from them. So in the US was the case of African-Americans, but you could think of refugees or other types of immigrants, that people will be less willing to actually pay tax money for a big welfare state if it benefits people that, is, that they feel don't share an identity with. Now, the, the evidence on this is, is a bit mixed. So there is some research that shows that it, it is the case that the increasing levels of immigration, lower support for the welfare state. At the same time, there's also research that shows that people might perceive immigration as a threat in some way, but what they will be asking for is greater protection because of higher risks of unemployment or what have you. So the evidence there is, is a bit mixed. Also, I think the existence of the welfare state probably also just fundamentally changes the game. I think if there was this level of ethnic diversity in uh, the period when the European welfare states were being developed, uh, I think you might have seen more Americanized welfare states in Europe. But I'm not sure whether or not that uh, the impact of migration is going to be uh, similar now that there's already a welfare state and uh, people already have some conception of what they think social citizenship should entail. And it is true that the US before the New Deal was in a very different place from you you know, European welfare states now. Where the, what the literature also shows is that the welfare state creates its own dynamic and its whole, its whole support coalition that makes it quite difficult to actually roll back welfare programs because in general, people just like welfare once they start benefiting from it. So that we see with Obamacare now, where people don't really... You know, there's a lot more support for the Affordable Care Act than for Obamacare, which is basically the same thing. But people start liking it. And it's going to be very difficult as recent... It's been the U.S. has shown to actually repeal all these programs that people start benefiting from. Yeah, the politics of retrenchment are kind of qualitatively different from the politics of, of expansion. But something that I find so frustrating about the, the discussion regarding the extent to which immigration is going to impact solidarity is just the fact that in the literature... Even Alessina and Glazer, who are making this argument, as you said, that it was going to lead to the Americanization of the welfare state uh, in Europe, admit that it's not because of some inherent fiscal unsustainability, but it's because of sort of political entrepreneurial action. And so then sort of my, my thinking is, aren't we then contributing to this by, by sort of predicting in this kind of deterministic way that solidarity is not going to be able to be constructed across racial lines, aren't we then contributing to the political impulse for exclusionary 
action. Yeah, I think what is really visible in literature is that what people think is a lot more important than what actually happens. And if you compare the literature on the actual fiscal impact of immigration on the welfare state, it shows that, for instance, most EU migrants actually contribute more to the welfare state than what they receive. Now, what's interesting to see is that that's not what most people believe. And what politicians, the kind of incentives that they have is rather to cater to what people believe than actually solving political and policy problems, which is a bit sad, but it's really it's really reality. So the, the incentive that politicians might have to restrict immigration or cut benefits for immigrants is not because they cost a lot to the welfare state, is that people might be less willing to pay for welfare or to support welfare if they think, which might be a myth or it might be reality, that it's going to go to people that they don't consider deserving. And I think there's historical precedent for that in America as well. So as much as we say that the welfare state is qualitatively different in Europe today than the 1935 New Deal was, I do think that we saw this idea play out in really similar ways to how we might see it play out today. So the increasing exclusionary nature. In 1967, for example, there were amendments to this aid to dependent children, this social assistance grant that we were talking about. And the amendments, I don't think that they were motivated by specific fiscal arguments, but instead they were motivated by the perception, as you said, of, of who was benefiting and who wasn't. So for example, these amendments froze grants to states for payments in the case of parental absence, but not in the case of unemployment or not in the case of family deaths. Or these, who's to say that parental absence would have been costing the state more, but it's something that was more highly politicized. It's something that public opinion had picked up on and, and had vilified, um, particularly among non-white people. So I think that's a really important point and it's something that in Europe we also need to watch out for. In what ways are the patterns of exclusion mimicking, feeding into, reflecting existing underlying racial or other inequalities and how can we mobilize to ensure that that doesn't play out in the same way that it did play out in America is to me where the interesting question comes. I think Alison and Glazer actually do indeed put a lot of emphasis on enterprising right-wing politicians who not just construct views on the deservingness of their different races, but as I understood, it also shaped how individualistic Americans are, at least also helped shape how Americans view the role of government in general, not just migrants or not. And I'm not sure whether or not that's also going to translate here as much, especially not in a different electoral landscape. Uh, there's still some incentive to obviously otherize and increase the saliency of this dimension, uh, uh, this uh, conflict uh, dimension is migration, but this incentive is different for different actors. So I'm looking across the table, and I think this is a question that's probably beyond the scope of this project, demographic changes in Europe. And I'm just wondering, would the influx of migrants not change perceptions in the long term? I think that the choices that you need to that you need to make indeed. And, but there are some countries that are definitely opposed to immigration, that's the case of the Hungarian government, what they've done, faced with a big labor shortage, because they don't want immigrants to increase the workforce, what they've done is pass a law that has been termed the slave law, that allows employers to um, demand more working hours from their workers. So I, I don't know how sustainable that kind of strategy of increasing the workload of your shrinking workforce actually is in relation to bringing in people from outside. But, you know, as I said, politicians, sadly, are sometimes more interested in what voters believe and what is going to get them elected and actually solving policy problems. 
Also, I think uh, hostility to migrants probably also differs uh, based on where they're from. And I think it's interesting how there's a mismatch between that uh, particular fact and whether or not people in the abstract support immigration. Even presume the Hungarians that, okay, uh, we're going to take in, I don't know, 2,000 British people. Okay, I guess it's fine. If you tell them we're taking 2,000 immigrants, oh, no, let's not do that. Let's put a stop on that. And that's quite a common attitude where people are against immigration. But then if you ask them, so do you want your neighbor to be deported? And it's going to say, oh, no, but it's different. Plenty of food for thought, I think, for episodes in the future. Thank you very much. It's time to wrap up. This was the first ever episode of the Borders of Equality podcast. We hope you enjoy it. And I thank my panelists. You can find us on SoundCloud on our website, bordersequality.org. Wherever you find your podcast, it could be iTunes, it could be Spotify, and even on Twitter at Borders Equality. Thank you very much and goodbye.